From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast from Bloomberg Radio, where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. I'm Scarlett Fu. And I'm Damien Sassauer. The Kentucky Derby on the horizon. I love that. I'm just kind of chomping at the bit. Ready to go somewhere. Not sure where, though. Well, Scarlett, last week's Derby, I mean, the handle for the whole week rose to a record $392 million. And by the way, Churchill Downs invested over $90 million to kind of improve the facilities this year. Really cool stuff. Yeah. Luck seating and all of that, right? So joining us now is the CEO of the company, Churchill Downs, Bill Karstangen. Bill, great to speak with you. Uh, thanks, Scarlett. It's fantastic to be here with you. So obviously we have you on talking to us because uh, you found a little bit of time in your schedule before the 149th running of the Kentucky Derby on May 6th. What is the state of planning over at Churchill Downs right now? Well, fortunately, things are going really, really well. This is the 149th consecutive Kentucky Derby as well. So, um, so we've had a lot of practice. So the team is firing on all cylinders. And it's, it's a big production. Our, our, our team at the track flexes up from about 250 people or so to about 12,000. So it's quite a production. But fortunately, we have some great people that have done it many times before. Well, I mean, Scarlett, Bill's being far too shy. I, I mean, let's, so. let's be clear. They invested $90 million to expand premium seat capacity this year after they had a record year in 2022, which far surpassed the 2019 pre-pandemic levels. Let me ask you this, Bill. By the way, congratulations on a tremendous first quarter. I mean, record EBITDA across all three segments. And, you know, I believe, you know, if I'm not mistaken, I know the Arlington acquisition had an impact, but net income was up almost fourfold. So, I mean, amazing job there. What on earth is a historical racing machine? I mean, for our audience, you have to explain what these HRMs are and how it's driving your company's performance. Yes, um, happy to do that. And, and, and thank you for those kind words. We have a great team here and, and We've been following our, our strategies across our three segments, um, and it's really been paying off. So historical racing machines really are uh, machines that approximate slot machines. They, really, a slot machine is a, right. is a device with a screen, and around the back is a random number generator uh, that's based on an algorithm. Uh, historical racing machines look very similar to slot machines, and the random number generator around back is really based on previously run horse races. So it really, it largely approximates a, a typical slot machine experience. And it's, its existence is really a function of the fact that different states have different legal rules around how gaming is conducted and how the machines have to work and what machines are okay and what machines are not. And in some states, the form of gaming that is permitted uh, requires some connection to uh, horse racing. Scarlett, 
you have to listen to this. I'm, I just got to give you this. HRMs in Kentucky alone last year, the handle, $6.8 billion Whoa. in Kentucky alone. I mean, in Wyoming, where there's nobody, I mean, it did a billion three. I'm looking at these numbers and I can't even believe it. And so what does it take to install these in your in your casino properties, Bill? Like, I mean, is it a big deal or is it just basically turning, you know, plugging it in, turning it on and, 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 and you know, they will come? The hard part really is is getting the machine manufacturers to to uh, modify their production process to build these so that they comply with uh, the rules of each state around uh, historical racing machines. So once we do that, once we can actually get the machines produced, then the process becomes a lot more around uh, the construction of a casino or a casino floor, which we have some practice in. You know, we're, we, we do uh, have a great business going with historical racing machines, but we also have uh, plenty of uh, traditional class three, they call it class three slot machine casino operations across the rest of the company. So we've, we've got uh, gaming experience in, in virtually every segment of the U.S. gaming market. Um, and once we get the machines produced for us, we, we fall back into our processes and patterns that we use when we, when we build some of our other co- traditional casinos. So can you explain how these HRMs, these historical racing machines, uh, are integrated or related or linked to the general state and the general sport of horse racing? Is there a synergy there? Is there a feed-through? Often um, they're required to be at the same place where you have your horse track. That's not universally true, but in general it's true. Uh, so sometimes there's a physical connection to uh, horse racing and that they're located in the same spot. But generally, the customer bases are a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Uh, the typical uh, horse racing player, person that bets on horse racing, uh, can be male or female, tends to be male, uh, tends to like the puzzle of it, more focused on more focused on it as a game, more interested in things like sports betting or playing poker, whereas the HRM machines really attracts uh, male or female, but traditionally uh, tends to be more female, uh, middle-aged, uh, and, and uh, generally more interested in just uh, the experience of playing slot machines as opposed to the experience of doing a puzzle or, or, or betting on sports wagering. Bill, I, I could, you know, we could sit here all day and talk to you about the content journey for casino operators, but we don't have you for so long, and we got to talk Kentucky Derby. So, what's going on? I mean, what's the experience going to be like this year? How's it going to be different from last year? What, what, what what's your audience expecting? You hear the old adage, don't build the church for Easter Sunday. That's just not been the case with our operation in Kentucky. The facility is really constructed to house, you know, to entertain 150,000 people on Kentucky Derby Day. So it's quite a, it's quite a production and hospitality is. And we've, we've had great success uh, constructing, replacing and building lots of new hospitality to house all kinds of different groups. Uh, the Derby itself is really a microcosm of the of the of the country. You know, people start at the infield, and then they work their way up to having actual uh, bleacher seats, and then stadium seats, and then a box with their friends, and then indoor dining, and then uh, work there with turf club, the mansion. There, there are so many different experiences and types of hospitality there. It's, it's really built to to serve the needs of America. So all different types of groups, all different types of preferences for hospitality. And folks often over the years graduate in their minds to different different levels of hospitality. So it's 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 a kaleidoscope, you know, it's a collage of of 
uh, all kinds of different people looking for all kinds of uh, different hospitality experiences, but sharing this common this common sort of holiday festival spirit yeah. that really infects the whole town. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's something that everyone gets into. Can you walk us through what the last week will look like? When do the horses, the jockeys start arriving? When do fans and participants start arriving? And um, how much, I, I guess, I, I just want to get a sense since Damien and I, unfortunately, are not going to make it. <laughs> um, what we're going to be missing out on? Yeah, so the energy hits you, you know, the unique in- energy of the Kentucky Derby hits you when you, when you arrive in the airport. It, it really is akin to a holiday. So for example, on the Friday before the Kentucky Derby, it's the day called the Oaks. It's where it's the, uh, it's the race for the Phillies. So, so for the girls, the three-year-old race for the girls, that's a day off from, from school. That's a holiday in this region. <laughs> so it gives you a sense of what is it like here. Everything's building towards the Derby. There have been activities going on since about heavy activities since about a week ago. Uh, other people have Fourth of July fireworks display. This town kicks off with Thunder Over Louisville, which is really built around uh, a, a giant fireworks display. So as we get into this last week, all the horses are here. The jockeys, uh, many of them are here, but uh, many of the owners, the trainers of the horses, and the horses themselves—they're all here. And what's happening in this community is a series of, of, of events built around everybody's own individual rhythms, uh, how they celebrate with their family. But at the track, we kick off with opening night, which is Saturday. And then we take Sunday and Monday off from racing. And then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, culminating with Saturday with the Derby, every one of those days is a really big day. So, for example, on the Oaks, the day before the Derby, we'll have anywhere from 100,000 to 120,000 people. Wow. Follow it up the next day with the Derby and 150,000. The Thursday before all this, uh, I don't know what a crowd will be this year, but it'll probably be 40 to 50,000. And then you back up earlier in the week. So every day has a theme. Every day has a different uh, set of uh, traditions and, and uh, festivities around the day. And... Um, and people don't generally go to every single day. Of course, we do. I do. But everybody has their days that they like to, to participate sure. in right. before we get to the big day. And they're racing. We're racing courses each of those days. Bill, I just have one more question for you. Um, how many times a day are you checking the weather? And what's your favorite weather application? <laughs> um, like, I use weather. I use the Weather Channel. I'm just curious what weather app you use. Dark, dark Sky. Dark Sky, yeah. Yeah, what, but that what, got bought out by <laughs> Apple. <laughs> My, my favorite one is the one that gives us the best news. Uh, <laughs> so it, it's going to change every day and during the day. But uh, the thing about Kentucky is uh, if you come to Kentucky this time of year, it looks really like Ireland. It's almost emerald green. Yeah. Uh, it's rainy season. So we get a fair amount of rain in Kentucky during this time of year, and that's why everything's beautiful and green. Uh, but it can rain on Derby Day. It usually rains during the week. And so paying attention to the, to the weather is a real art. And it's one of my least favorite parts of what we do because I have absolutely nothing that I can do about it. I have no control over what the weather is going to be. And we're prepared and people come and and they have a great experience even if we do get poor weather. Uh, But it's a lot more fun for us when the weather is perfect. So every year I hope for perfect weather. Uh, Most years it's it's good enough. It's rarely perfect, but most years it's pretty good. And and it's a great event anyway. But uh, the weather is a real, uh, it's a real subculture here, as everybody's giving lots of advice on, on what to expect. But who the heck knows? What, you know, what I've learned is 
uh, weather in, in our 21st century here, weather prediction is not all that accurate. Maybe AI will help us out and <laughs> make us more accurate. But I like that. Let's put AI to some good time. use, right? Yeah, that would help us. I'd be all for that. Bill, thank you so much for your time. Bill Karstengen is CEO of Churchill Downs. Thank you. I appreciate it. Happy Derby, everyone. Happy Derby. Thanks, Good Bill. Good luck to you. That was Bill Karstengen. He is CEO of Churchill Downs, which, of course, is hosting the Kentucky Derby, the 149th running of the Derby. This has been the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast. I'm Scarlett Fu here with Damian Sassauer. Starting next week, by the way, we will be uploading our podcast shows exclusively on Fridays now. And, of course, we will continue to dig into the world of money and sports. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Scarlett Fu. And I'm on Twitter at D Sassauer. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.